The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Recently, I've been watching the miniseries Band of Brothers. It's a series that came out a few years back on HBO. It's about a a U.S. military unit, and it tracks it through a large part of World War II. Recently, I just saw the, the episode where they finally enter into Germany, and they come upon a forced labor camp, concentration camp. You've seen pictures, you know what I'm talking about. Hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of men in this camp, enslaved to be worked to death. It's a ghastly thing. They came upon it. It was shocking. The guards were all gone, but the men were still locked up, just held in by just a a simple wire fence, but given their condition, it was more than enough to keep them in. They were locked up in there. They were sick, malnourished, couldn't get out. They needed to be liberated. And so a soldier walked up, cut the chain that held the gate, threw the gate open, and they were free. But the ordeal wasn't over for them. They were free, but they were still in desperate straits because they were all starved and sick. They didn't have any clothing. Really bad situation. If they just wandered off, they they still would have died. They'd been set free, but they still needed to be nursed along back to full health, to the fullness of what all that freedom should be. It was them. Spiritually speaking, not a one of us here is very much different. Spiritually speaking, we all start out in bondage, personally ourselves enslaved, working towards death. That's where we are. And we cannot escape on our own. We need to be liberated. But once liberated, it's not over. We still need to be carried along back to the fullness of what that liberty, of what that life is supposed to be. Spiritually, we're just like them. So, here's the main point for today's passage. Picking up on that idea. Main point for this morning. Jesus alone can liberate you from the power of sin. Jesus alone can liberate you from the power of sin. He alone can cut the chain throw open the gate and and let you out, end your imprisonment, and Jesus alone can then carry you on to nourish you and bring you back to the fullness of what that liberty, what that freedom is supposed to be. Jesus alone can do that. That's what we're going to look at. Today we're in John chapter 8, and this section is a continuation of the passage that we looked at last week, verses 12 to 30. Jesus is still in dialogue with these same folks. He'd made, last week we saw him make another significant pronouncement in relation to the festival of booths, he'd seized upon the lamp lighting ceremony and he'd taken the opportunity to declare to everybody, I am the light of the world. He made that statement, claiming that he's the one who illumines people, chases away darkness. And then he entered into this dialogue, this debate with, with the Jewish listeners who were around him. He went back and forth about this. And by the end of the passage, verse 30, we see that many believed in him as they listened to him talk, listened to him preach. It's a positive note, sort of. It's at least an improvement on picking up rocks to stone him to death. We don't quite know how positive, we don't know how optimistic of a, 
of a point this is. We kind of are holding our breath as we move into today's passage. We've seen many times that belief, trust in the book of John is not genuine. What kind of belief do these folks have? It takes us to today's passage. We'll find out. Let me read. We're reading from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59, the rest of the chapter. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As we observed, last week's passage ended, verse 30, with many believed in him. And so verse 31, Jesus says to those who believed in him, he's speaking to them, and he engages them to clarify something. Are genuine believers, genuine disciples of mine, are they those who who start out well with a flash and a big profession? Not necessarily. They're not just those who start well, they are those who end well. Those who persevere. Who abide or remain, that's the word there, who abide in my word. Genuine disciples stick to Jesus. And they keep sticking to Jesus. They follow Him and His way as He teaches about it. As He lays it out, they hold to it, they obey it, they follow it. On and on and on and on. Even when that word becomes hard, when it becomes difficult, when He presses the hard button, when circumstances in life are difficult, they still hold to Him. That's a genuine disciple. Someone who abides in His word. And Why would you want to do that? Things get hard. Why would you want to do that? Because genuine disciples are those who know and come to know more and more the truth. The truth. Know the truth. This is not just an intellectual thing. It's partially intellectual, but it's more than that. To know the truth is intellectual and relational. To know the truth, to know the one who is the truth. Later in the same book, Jesus is going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. To know the truth is to know Jesus relationally as well as intellectually. It can't be just intellectual. Satan knows plenty of facts about Jesus. And absolutely anybody who sets their mind to it can memorize huge portions of the Bible. It's more than just to know facts. It's to know relationally. To know Him. To know Christ who is the truth. First, initially, dramatically, a drastic change, and then an ongoing knowing and knowing and knowing and knowing. And that leads to something. It leads to freedom. Freedom. He's talking about moral and, and spiritual freedom here, not, not a physical, political one. And the Jews that he's talking to, they get that. Sometimes it's easy to read that, read, read that verse, we've never been enslaved to anyone, and to think they're talking about something just political. I don't think that's likely. Remember, they're at the Feast of Booze, which is partially a celebration of what God did in the Exodus. And what was it in Exodus from? 400 years of slavery. They haven't forgotten their time in Egypt. And they also realize that we also were slaves in Babylon for 70 years, and they could look out on the streets and see Roman soldiers everywhere. They realize some of the political realities that they've known. So I don't think they're actually saying that. I think when they, they make that statement and continue on, we are offspring of Abraham, it's an indication that they think of themselves as always being spiritually free, spiritually liberated. Like this. Sure, we know politically, Egypt and Babylon and Rome and about everybody else have politically conquered us, but nobody has ever spiritually conquered us. We've never given in to any one of their idolatries, any one of their pagan rituals. We've remained Jews. Wherever we've been, we've remained Jews. Children of Abraham. Children of His promises. Children of the covenant, in line for the blessings. Those people out there aren't, but we've remained faithful. That's who we are. 
They might need to be set morally and spiritually free, but we have always been because we are of Abraham. And Jesus cuts right through that. And you talk of lineage, a race, all that's irrelevant because he says, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. Everybody. Anybody. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. If you do, sin. The grammar there in the word indicates he's talking about a habitual path, a walking a path of sin, as opposed to walking the path of righteousness. There are two paths you can walk in life, and you might depart from them generally, uh, specifically at times, but generally you're walking one of two paths, and if you are walking on this path of sin, you're a slave to it. That's why you walk there always. Slave to that path. That's what he's saying. You and everybody else alike. And then he draws an analogy from life at the time, talking about a family that had slaves. He says, we all know this. Slaves don't live in the house. The son, who's the heir, he lives in the house. Slaves don't live in there. They, they remain outside the house. So you see what he's setting up here. He's got a couple things. He's got son and house, slave, sinner. This is kind of the analogy he's working on, and those two are separated forever. You can't mix them. Get the son in the house, sin, slave over here, separated The only way you can mix them is if you get set free and you're no longer a slave. See what he's saying there with that. If the son sets you free, well, that'd change everything. He's the heir. He has the right to do with whatever he wants to do with. If he sets you free, you'd be free. Boy, that'd be neat, wouldn't it? You need that liberation. Sure, I know you're offspring of Abraham literally, physical descendants of his. In these verses 33 and verse 37, literally he's saying you're seed of Abraham. I know you're seed of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. They're not abiding in his word, but are rejecting it. So you have the divide played out here. You have son and house, slaves. I'm the son. I do what my father does here in the house. You're slaves, you do what your father does. What's the response? We have a father, Abraham. And I'm getting it. We have a father. Abraham's our father. What's beginning to happen here in the debate is they're circling around what the terms son of or father of would have meant back then. If you call someone a son of someone or something, you're assigning some characteristic to them. For instance, a couple of the disciples were called sons of thunder means they were thunderous. I'm not quite sure if that was a compliment or an insult. Not sure. Elsewhere in the Bible, you can read somebody called a son of hell. I'm pretty sure that's an insult. <laughs> you get the idea, though. Son of bears characteristics of the father. So he's talking. They're, they're going back and forth about who's the son of who. That's what the discussion is about here. Verse 39, when, when they're claiming that we have a father, Abraham, they're saying we do like, we are characteristic of, we're like our father, Abraham. So that's what they're claiming. And he says, I, Jesus says, I act like my father, you act like your father. Abraham's our father, he's blessed of God, so we're blessed of God because we're just like him. So what are you talking about? We can't come into the house. Of course we're in the house. We're his sons. He says, hold on a second. Hold on. If you were 
actually sons, children of Abraham. He switches words here. He's acknowledged they are seed of Abraham, but he switches words when he moves to children. I know you're seeds, but if you were sons of Abraham, you'd be Abrahamic. And there's no way on earth Abraham would be killing me. No way on earth Abraham would seek to kill a righteous man speaking the word of God to him. He would embrace him and worship him, but you don't do that. There's no way you're Abrahamic. But you are, you're right, you are like your father. Tension's building here. And so they shoot back at him some comment about sexual immorality. We weren't born with sexual immorality. It could, be that it could be that they're referring to some side comment, some side dispute that they had with the Samaritans about the lineage of the Samaritans and the Jews. could be that. It could also be just a plain old low blow about the rumors related to Jesus' birth. It could be like this. We weren't born of sexual morality. We have one father, God. How about you? It takes a lot of nerve talking about fathers, Jesus. Could be that. We have one father, God. Jesus moves right to that point, though it doesn't engage them on the, on the sexual morality part. We have one father, God. No, you don't. Again, you're not like God either. If you were like God, you'd love me. But you don't, so you're not. But you are like your father. Who's left? The devil. You are like your father, the devil. He's the father of lies and has been a murderer from the very beginning when he killed Adam and Eve with the lie involving the piece of fruit. He hates the truth. He seeks to kill the righteous. You hate the truth. You seek to kill the righteous. You're just like him. That's not very nice. Pretty blunt. Verse 47. The reason you don't hear the word of God is that you are not of God. Several verses in this paragraph make something really clear. Several verses make clear why people do not respond to Jesus. Why they don't. It's because people are not of God left to themselves. People are of Satan. It's hard. But that's what he's saying. Verse 44. People do have a will. Left to themselves, people have a will, and it is to do the desires of Satan. That's the human will. It rejects Christ precisely because he speaks the truth. Because he speaks the truth, people reject him. People by nature are set against Christ. Verse 48, the conversation takes a bit of a turn then. And the accusation comes, for you to say this kind of stuff, descendants of Satan, servants of Satan, bent against God, for you to say that about us, we religious people who are nice on the outside, you, you must be crazy, spiritually depraved like the Samaritans and demonically possessed. Isn't that true? No, no, it's not true. No spiritually depraved, demonically possessed person is so concerned to honor God like me. Not like you. Think about it. I have never sought to honor myself. I seek to honor God the Father. But I do because I have to. It's the truth. I have to point people towards myself. If I didn't do that, I'd be lying to you. I have to do that, but not to my honor, to His. 
If you come to me, truly, truly, again, a solemn statement there. If you come to me and hold fast to my word, you'll never see death. Again, they think he's out of his mind. What are you talking about? Abraham and the prophets, they all died. They they should understand he's speaking spiritually here, but they move it right to the physical level, and they think he's talking about how nobody will ever physically die. These men who spoke the word of God, the prophets, they're dead. What are you talking about? Jesus takes the opportunity to connect himself back to Abraham because Abraham is such a significant figure. He reaches back and said, I'll tell you what, Abraham looked forward. 2,000 years ago, Abraham looked forward to the day. He had all these promises. I'm going to create this vast people from you and give them all this vast land. None of that happened in Abraham's life. But he looked forward to the time when it would happen. He believed God. That there would come a time when God would move dramatically and decisively to bring that about, to fulfill all the promises. The day of God's visitation. He looked forward to that day and he saw it in his mind's eye. And he rejoiced at the coming of the Christ. Jesus said, he saw me and he rejoiced. They think, you're crazy, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? More than that, he says. Jesus reaches for for more, more than just I'm 2,000 years old, more than just that he saw me in his mind's eye. He reaches for the brass ring, so to speak, before Abraham was. Get this, I am. He seizes upon the name of God. He's been working up to this. John's been showing how Jesus has been working up to this throughout this whole chapter. And here he finally delivers this statement, I am. That's the name of God. The name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. You see it in your Bible in the Old Testament, all capital letters. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. That would have said that he existed long ago. He says, I am. And they get it. They pick up stones to kill him right then for the blasphemy because... From their perspective, he, a mere man, just claimed to be God in their presence of all things in the temple. And so the Lord leaves the temple. That's where the passage ends. That's the text, and it's obviously a really long one with lots of twists and turns. I'm not going to be able to focus on everything, but I am going to bring out one central point that I've already mentioned about what Jesus does. Jesus alone can liberate you from the power of sin. Jesus alone can do this. And there are two phases to that liberation. There's the actual the cutting of the lock, if you will, and throwing open the gate and ending the imprisonment. And then there's the afterwards, the carrying us, the nurturing us along towards fullness of life. Talk about those two phases. First one, Jesus alone can cut the lock on the gate and end the imprisonment. This is first because it's where we all start, in here. We all start locked up here, imprisoned here, chained, spiritually speaking. And his first and decisive step is to liberate a person from that, to throw open the gates and let us out. You see this develop, begin to develop in verse 33 while he's talking to the Jewish people. They respond, and as we saw, their comments are clearly rooted in their Jewish heritage. 
We don't need this kind of freedom. We get what you're talking about, but we don't need that because we're Jewish. We've always been free. We're of Abraham. And Jesus follows that with, yes, you do need this because you're human. Being Jewish or Gentile doesn't matter. You're human. If you do sin, you are a slave to sin. Not if you do sin and you're a Gentile, or if you do sin and you're male, or if you do sin and... If you do sin, if you walk this path, if this is the road of your life, you're a slave over there and you're imprisoned. And you need to be set free. You need to be liberated. We're slaves. It's where we start out. And some here today may still be there. Remember who he's talking to, those who believed. He's pressing this point with those who on the outside, to some degree, have believed. There may be some here who know they haven't believed, but there may well be some here who are believing, but not believing. If so, this is still you. Listen. We all start out here, slaves bound unable to just decide to go somewhere else and do something different. We're enslaved. We're in a camp being worked towards death. That's our fallen nature. what they're like. We lack the power to walk in righteousness. We sin by command. Not every sin all the time in every way. That'd be physically impossible. We can't do every sin always. But we sin. It's the habit of our life. Where we're going. The direction we're heading. It's what that path is like. Jesus elaborates on that further in 43 to 47. Tells us what that's like. That slavery to sin, it's not just an impersonal thing. Sin has a leader. Satan. You're a slave to sin. Actually, you're a slave to Satan. He's the father. And remember what he's doing here. He's he's reducing the Jews down to everybody else's level. So when he's talking to Jewish people and he's saying that the devil is your father, what he means is, just like everybody else, the devil is your father too. We're all starting there. All of us start here. This is where things get a little hard to handle. A little hard to to swallow. Do you mean to say to me that people start out by nature as servants of Satan? No, I don't mean to say that. Jesus means to say that. And does. Very clearly. People start out, we're born and grow up as servants to our father, Satan. Paul said the same thing in 2 Timothy 2. Been taken captive by Satan to do his will. That's the truth about us. We follow after him. We're bent towards him. We do his desires. That's a sad thing. It should be sobering to us. We do not love God like we should. Sin begins in here. Our hearts are wrong. And then our activities are wrong. But our hearts are bent in a particular way. Decisively inclined. Away from God. Towards Satan. Towards lies. Away from truth. Towards sin and away from righteousness. Towards eternal death and away from eternal life. We stand there in a desperate situation. Just stop and think about this. This this should not be just theoretical. Now I know most of us have passed through this already, 
Most aren't here anymore, but we should still think about it and, and let it sit on you. You're in trouble. You see the images of, of the concentration camp, and it's pretty clear the people in there are in trouble, even the live ones. They're in desperate trouble. You and I, we were in desperate trouble. Some here today still are in desperate trouble. We need to be set free. Need to be liberated from this bondage that leads to death. Desperately need that. Need someone to come along and cut the lock on the gate, throw it open and let us out. Who? Who? Jesus tells us, verse 36, the Son can set you free. The Son can. Jesus alone can. He can cut the bolt, open the gate. He, fully God and fully man, absolutely unique. He alone, because He alone is this marvelous mixture. Fully man, fully God. Come down to earth, God in the flesh, perfectly obedient. Always and only doing and saying what the Father has told him to do and say. Always walking this path of righteousness. Never ever on this path. Perfect and clean and pure. God in flesh. He alone can set us free because He alone is not in the camp. Praise God that He has done this for so many here. That He can do it for more still. The words of Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, listen to, this, listen to this verse from this hymn. Hear the enslavement and hear the liberation. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound means tightly held. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's not nature out there, that's nature in here. Locked up by sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God, your eye, diffused a quickening ray, sent out a ray of light that awakened me. Thine eye diffused a quickening way, I wo ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's how he does this. That's how he throws the gate open. Thou, my God, dies for me. Comes to earth. Sin that is my master... I'm due something for that. You are due something for that. Death forever and ever. And He comes and dies in your place. That's a glorious thing. Don't let the familiarity that most of us have with that dull it. Oh, yeah, the cross. Don't let that happen. Don't. The Bible is full of that. And the Bible is written to you. Because it wants you to hear it again and again and again. It wants you to sing out with Wesley, Amazing love! 
How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? It should be amazing. It should floor you. Hallelujah, what a Savior. If, if you are a genuine disciple. Remember, that's the question he's working on here. He's speaking to those who believe and says, you are a genuine disciple. You have experienced this glorious salvation if you hold fast, remain with me, with my word. A huge if there. So the critical question is, are you remaining? Everybody in the crowd would have said, I believe. And then look what they said to him, and look how it went. He presses the hard button a little bit, and they do this. Are you remaining? Are you holding fast to him? One of the ways you can tell is the power of sin broken in your life. Sure, you still sin. We all sin. I sin. Sin plenty of times already today. We still sin, but are you walking this path of righteousness in here in your heart? What do you love? Who do you love? And are you grieved when you find yourself veering over here to this path? And do you come back? Repentant, humble. It's one of the ways you can tell if you're genuine, if you're holding to Him. It's the power of sin broken in your life. Is righteousness growing and growing and growing? Is holiness in here growing and growing and growing? Are your loves becoming more and more like what Christ loves? Other ways you could think about that, other ways you could examine it. The critical question though, do you remain with Him? Are you following after Him close? Are you walking in obedience? You must if you want to be a genuine disciple. It's worth it. Come to Him. Experience that freedom. Freedom from sin and death. Being let out of the camp. It's an awesome thing. But it's not the end. It's an awesome and decisive, huge point, but it's not the end. If they just cut the gate open and let the prisoners wander off, they all still would have died. They needed to be nourished and carried along to fullness of life. Gets us to the second phrase, phase of the liberation. <clears throat> Jesus alone can carry you all the way back to full spiritual health. That's Jesus too. Carries you all the way back to full spiritual health. And this second phase, it occurs to me, I'm trying to think about this text, and, I, and I'm looking at, Verse 32, the future tense there, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Surely there's something related to the point of salvation, but it also presses my mind to think down the road a little bit. And then I keep thinking about the present situation that we all still live in. Here's the deal. If you are a Christian, I'm going to assume from now on that you are a genuine Christian here. That's who I'm talking to right now. The hold of sin on your life has been broken. You're no longer a slave to it. You no longer sin by obligation, by command. Your, your will has been changed. Something different's happened to you. Satan is not your father or your master anymore. There's a drastic 
dramatic changes happen there. But Satan is still who Satan is. He still exists, and he still is who he is. He's a really good deceiver. The best. His forte. That's his only game, actually. He's really good at that. And he still wants no part of the truth, and he doesn't want anybody, those who are his slaves or those who have been liberated, he doesn't want anybody to walk in the truth. He doesn't want that at all. And our fallen hearts, liberated though they are, our fallen hearts are still very susceptible to being deceived into compromising with sin. Not forced or obligated, but deceived into compromising. If, if you will, the slave has to, we can volunteer. You put it like that, maybe. He's good at this, and we're vulnerable to it. Here's how this works. Recently, I heard something very insightful. It was a, a man speaking to Christians, a large lecture he was giving to Christians, and he said this, Realize that people, us included, realize that people do not live according to the facts. We all live according to interpretations of the facts. We don't live according to facts. We live according to interpretations of the facts. A real simple example here in the, in the physical realm. You look at your, on your arm and you have a strange-looking mole there on your skin. You think, hmm, I wonder if that's skin cancer. You watch it for a little while. That doesn't look too good. I think that might be skin cancer. And so you go to the doctor. The doctor looks at it and the doctor says, hmm... Interesting. I think we should probably get that biopsied. And now you're even more worried because the doctor, you want what you want the doctor to say is, that's not skin cancer. But the doctor's a little concerned. We should get this biopsied. So you're a little more concerned. You take a, a slide of it or whatever they do and send it off to the lab and you wait. And all the while you're anxious about it. And then the result comes back, nope, not skin cancer, you're fine. So your emotions go a little worried, a little more worried, not worried. Now, all through there, what was the fact? It wasn't skin cancer. It didn't, wasn't skin cancer and then became not skin cancer. It was all along not cancer. But your emotions aren't coming from that fact. They're coming from the various interpretations of the fact. Your own, as you look at it. The doctor, as a doctor, looks at it. And then the doctor in the lab, as the doctor in the lab, looks at it. See what I'm saying there? This is universal. You could think of a thousand different examples because it happens in everything in life. We don't live by the facts. We live by interpretations or perceptions of or appearances, what the facts look like to us. Whose interpretation of the facts of life do you live by? The deceiver Satan's or Jesus is the truth? Which one? This is important to think about. It's important to realize. Do you trust Satan the deceiver or Jesus the truth? Because to use the same analogy with the cancer, while you're sitting there in the doctor's office trying to figure out what this is, there's stepping back a little bit, there's another debate going on. In your mind, there's another war. Things are arising up in you and you're in danger not of being ordered back into sin, of being ordered into rebellion against God, not being ordered into abandonment of God and distrust of Him and frustration with Him, but you're in danger of being duped back into it. The thoughts arise. Where is God in this? How can He let this happen to me? 
If he loved me, he wouldn't. Where am I going to get the money to care for all this? And what, what, if, what if there isn't a cure for it and I die? What happens to my kids there? And how could God be so uncaring and insensitive to let this happen and to not fix it and to not hear my prayer and to not respond right now to me in the way that I want? Those thoughts and a thousand others run through our mind in situations like that. All of us think like that. And Satan slides right up next to you and says, Yep, you're right. If he loved you, he wouldn't do this. But he doesn't. Or, or maybe he's just not powerful enough to handle it. Or maybe he's flat out immoral for not ending cancer totally. Whatever, here's what you should do. You should curse God and die. Little help that he's been. You'll hear that. Sometimes audibly. That's what Satan said to Job through his wife's mouth when he was similarly afflicted. But does the presence of cancer or financial hardship related to cancer or anything else, does that prove as fact that God does not love his children? That he's not powerful enough to stop it? That he's immoral for allowing it to exist? That he's asleep on the job for not answering prayer, etc., etc.? Does that prove that or is that just an interpretation? Because Job interpreted the very same situation dramatically differently. Job said, blessed be God. God is good. What he gives me is for my good, painful though it may be. He gives me devastating cancer. He didn't give Job cancer, but you know what I'm saying. He gives me devastating cancer. What a perfect way to strengthen my faith in him, which is of greater worth than gold and health and long life and anything else imaginable. Thank you for this. Hard as it is, thank you. That was Job's interpretation. Maybe there are others. Which was right? See what I'm getting at here. I don't want to lose you in the long analogy, so let me kind of boil it down here. Stuff happens in life. And right after stuff happens, the battle begins. What do you make of that stuff? And there are voices everywhere arguing their cases. All kinds of voices. Your neighbor's voice. Your spouse's voice, Oprah's voice, the voice on the call-in radio show that you listen to in your car, your misguided but well-intending Christian friend, the voice of your own heart, thousands of voices arguing for an interpretation of the stuff that just happened. And here's the deal. None of those other voices, they're all coming from, from one of two different camps. Every voice from one of two different camps. God's truth or other. And other never announces itself as the deceptive voice of Satan. Your neighbor does not say, when she comes over for coffee and to begin to talk about your marriage, how difficult it is, she does not say, okay, what I'm about to say is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you follow it... <laughs> It will take you away from God, lead to your sorrow here, and maybe forever. But that being said, if I were you and he treated me like that, I'd divorce him and go get somebody else who cared about me. She doesn't say that. She might say the latter part of that and, and say it in a very caring way because she cares about you. She doesn't realize what the truth is. All these voices are arguing all these cases. What do you do about that? 
Well, think about it. If all these voices are arguing all these cases and the root of them is falsehood, deception leading you away from God, if it's a lie, what's the antidote to that? Truth. Where do you get the truth? Jesus says, Abide in my word. If you stick to my word, you'll never see death. Now he's speaking his word at the time. We have his word now in the scriptures. He's talking, at one level he's talking about evidence that you have actually genuinely been saved. But at another level, what he's saying is that you will come to know the truth and know the truth and know the truth and know the truth and it will set you free and set you free, 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 free. It'll nurture you in your freedom. There's a decisive freedom and then there's a nurturing in the freedom, a movement towards the fullness of freedom. And how does that happen? Still by abiding in his word. It can't happen otherwise. It just cannot. There's a lot that could be said about this. Let me boil it down to this. Say two things for application here. One, first, nurture your relationship with Jesus. Abide in His Word. Read the Bible a lot for long periods of time. Memorize it. Listen to it on, on tape. Listen to it in song. Get the Bible into you. Wash yourself with it. It's the antidote to everything else that you're going to hear. It tells you the path that you should walk, what it looks like, and I think even more importantly, at least for me, more importantly is it tells me who Jesus is behind the facts. I find that really I know most of the facts already. I know what I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do. I know a lot of that stuff already. What I need to know is more and more of Jesus. To know the truth relationally. Not just to know the truth factually. You read the Bible, you meet Him there. It happens. Nurture that. The second thing, build and get involved in a community of people that are also about nurturing their relationships with Jesus and will point out your sin to you. If you think about this, this is obvious. Which lies do you believe? You probably don't know. If you knew they were lies, you wouldn't believe them. Right? It makes a lot of sense, at least to me. I know I believe lies, but I have a difficult time discerning which ones. You have a different view. You see me in circumstances and situations. If you were to be in my house last night or this morning, you'd see me stomping around and pouting, and you'd probably be able to detect some certain things. It might be difficult for me, but it would be good for me if you would say, I think you're believing something that's not true right now, Steve. You believe that you are entitled to having your life ordered such and so, and that you should get that, and if you don't, you have the right to pout about it. That's not true, Steve. That would be a little awkward to say. It might be a little hard for me to hear, but it would be good for me. It would be truth, if spoken in love, that would grow me. Turn, turn to the book of Hebrews. We're almost done here, but I, one last comment, because I want to show you this. There's a, a scriptural mandate for building this kind of community. 
Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, he's speaking to the church here, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, here's the key phrase here, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do I avoid getting hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? You exhort me every day. How do you avoid getting hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Well, part of it is you nurture your relationship with Jesus, but part of it is that I exhort you every day. So does your neighbor and your friend and your spouse. And they exhort you with this, not with their own opinions. Take care, brothers and sisters, that you do that. That you build a community like that, that you become a member of a community like that that sees it as important and helpful to talk about sin. A little awkward maybe, but important and helpful. We need to be that kind of a people so that we don't fall into and become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have been liberated. If you are a genuine Christian, you have been liberated, but you are still along the path of, towards fullness of life, and you have a deceiver who lays in wait for you, who speak to you through a thousand voices, Christ alone can carry you back to fullness of life. Jesus alone can liberate us, initially and then progressively. Liberate you from the power of sin. Embrace Him. Hold fast to Him and to His Word. Can you give us a time now to pray? We're moving towards communion. Pray. Think about what do you need to confess? Maybe how you need to engage with that kind of a community or how you need to repent of neglecting the Bible and think about ways, ask the Lord to teach you how to turn to it more and more consistently. Pray. A minute or two, I'll close this and we'll move directly towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.